Welcome to the Cinema Silo, a podcast where three sisters recreate the post-movie theater experience. I'm Jessie. I'm Frankie. And this is Annie. This week, we are starting the theme, I Do Not Dream of Labor. My first pick, the 1999 workplace satire from Mike Judge, Office Space. The basic plot of Office Space follows one man named Peter, played by Rod Livingston, who works as a programmer at a nondescript tech company in the late 90s before Y2K, doing something with bank software. He's miserable at his job, and he and a few of his work friends, who are also disgruntled employees, get together to stick it to the company when they find out that there's going to be some changes. So we'll talk through the plot. We'll talk through the cast. It's a hilarious movie that has become a cult classic, a personal favorite in our house. So we're really excited to talk about it today. Okay, so who's in the cast? Ron, Liv- You said Ron Livingston is the main character, Peter. This was his first major leading role in a movie but i think he's best known as burger as burger no he's not sex in the city he's best known as nixon from band of brothers <laughs> guys no it's not even close really he's not best known as burger from sex in the city that is that is the baldest lie i've ever heard he's the post-it note breakup I'm sorry. iconic he's one of the main me. brothers in band of brothers I can't. this is objectively not right <laughs> Well, really, I think we know him from <laughs> Office, Office Space. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. He was also in Boardwalk Empire. Oh, one of the like late, a little late bit. seasons. Yeah. yeah. And I think when we heard that, we were like, the guy from Office Space is going to be in no, it. I, see, I thought guy from Band of Brothers. When we saw Band of Brothers, we were like, the guy from Office Space is in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Who else? What are some other major characters? I mean, I think it's safe to say this movie is mostly white male actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's from 1999. Mm-hmm. Not remarkable for that time period. Yeah, right? It's also set in suburbia. It's, right. It was shot, shot in... It's set in like, lots of strip malls and chain restaurants. It's like yeah. those office car parks, mm-hmm. just nondescript. Could be anywhere, but was shot in Austin, Texas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But looks like anywhere in America. Yeah. I've definitely worked in places that look like this. <laughs> from the car in the parking lot to the building mm-hmm. that makes no sense. You have to walk over weird grass areas. Yeah. And then there are also these chain restaurants that are near these, like, office parks. And that's where we get probably the biggest star of the film, Jennifer Aniston, plays mm-hmm. Peter's yeah. love interest. Yes, she is a server at... Tchotchkes. Kind of, Tchotchkes. which is making fun of Applebee's and Fridays. And yeah, those <laughs> demoralizing chain restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. The rest of the office, his two friends, I haven't seen them in many other things, those actors. One is Samir, mm-hmm. and the other is Michael Bolton, mm-hmm. which is a running gag throughout the film that his name is Michael Bolton. But the actor who plays Samir, I've never really seen him in other stuff. He doesn't really appear in other Mike Judge things. But David Herman, who plays Michael Bolton, does. And so Mike Judge, he's done a lot of other things he's done. Beavis and Butthead, King of the Hill. He went on to do Silicon Valley. 
Office Space was his first non-animated outing. Mm -hmm. David Herman was a recurring voice on King of the Hill. The actor who plays Samir is A.J. Naidu, who is married to Heather Burns, who everybody knows as the best character from Miss Congeniality. Describe your perfect date. date. Oh, Was it like April? April 23rd. (laughs) (laughs) Not too hot, not too cold. All you need is a light jacket. jacket. Yeah, Yeah, they're married. Okay. um, What else has Mike Judge directed? He did Idiocracy. So that comes after this. Uh, So before Office Space, Mike Judge had done Beavis and Butthead, and that was his main thing. But he'd also animated a few shorts that ended up on Saturday Night Live, including one that inspired Office Space called Milton, which is the Stephen Root stapler character Mm -hmm. in Office Space. And so the whole film was built off of that nugget and the success of those animated shorts on Mm -hmm. SNL. But this is his first time doing live action, working with like shooting actors and using cameras in that way and that he's not animating. There's a Milton cartoon on YouTube, and we'll link to that in the show notes. It's amazing how it it feels like and sounds like watching the character Milton in Office Space. Mm -hmm. Like, the lines are directly taken and put into the script. (laughs) But yes, after Office Space, he goes on to do Idiocracy, which is hilarious. Amazing. And uh, the movie Extract. Extract, which is the spiritual sequel to office space but instead of the worker level the main the protagonist is the manager level and that's jason bateman in that movie and he's in a factory whereas office space is these programmers in this little office and all the cubicles and then silicon valley the tv show on hbo which satirizes a new kind of workspace and Mike Judge, when he came up with the milton animated shorts it was because he'd worked like collating like purchasing forms at an office park in Silicon Valley. And so but he then eventually comes back to Silicon Valley for a more specific workplace comedy set there. That's pretty neat. Full circle. Back to the cast. The rest of these guys in this office, specifically the bosses and the consultants. They all pretty much audition for each other's roles, right? Because they're very, like, it's pretty interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're all <laughs> middle-aged the point. white right. men. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But you have Gary Cole playing Lumberg, the boss, who, it, that is an iconic role. People, yeah. like, recreate the, those, like, vocal mannerisms, his rhythm of talking, mm-hmm. and everyone knows instantly that that's a manager. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Um, I'm going to need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow. So if you could be here around nine, that would be great. Okay? Oh, oh, and I almost forgot. Uh, I'm also going to need you to go ahead and come in on Sunday, too. Okay? We uh, lost some people this week, and uh, we need to sort of play catch-up. Thanks. Stop. It's triggering. (laughs) I think Gary Cole is an underrated character actor. Yes. He's very funny. Well, we also, Frankie and I recently rewatched another Gary Cole classic, 
Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. <laughs> yes. Ricky plays Will Ferrell's dad. But there here's some other here's some other classic roles of his. Dodgeball. Who's he in Dodgeball? He play he plays Cotton. The, oh my gosh, he the announcer. Does. He's the announcer Jason with Jason Bateman. <laughs> They're both the managers in yes. these two Mike Judge movies. Yes. Pineapple Express. Oh yes. He's Ted Jones in Pineapple Express. The big drug dealer. Yeah. The Kingpin. Mm-hmm. He was in the bronze. Did you ever see the bronze? No. I only saw it because Sebastian Stan is in it. It is not good. <laughs> <laughs> he's in Veep. He's great in Veep. Oh, he's he's great in Veep. Yep. He had a pretty interesting beginning to his career on television. Um, you know, like just popping up in episodes, uh, one-off episodes of stuff. He was in Miami Vice, an episode of Miami Vice, a couple episodes of Moonlighting. Uh, later on, Frasier, Touched by an Angel, The Practice. <laughs> Do you know that meme of Ryan Murphy's like brunette white guys where it's just five white men with brown hair that Ryan Murphy casts in all of his movies and they all look the same? It's like Matt Bomer. It's like that guy. Yeah. Finn. From, I guess it's not just Ryan Murphy, but also, like, yeah, like, Matt Bomer, Henry Cavill, yes. all these people who kind of look the same. Yeah. Do you guys feel like we could put on a spectrum Gary Cole with Willem Dafoe and Kevin Bacon? Because I think that they're, <laughs> I think that there's, like, a spectrum there. I think it's, like, Willem Dafoe at one end and Gary Cole in the center and then, like, Kevin Bacon. I feel like we could face smash Willem Dafoe and Kevin Bacon and get Gary Cole. Gary Cole? Cole? Yeah, I think so too. (laughs) I think so too. Anyway. Who else? We also have, for the consultants, we have someone who auditioned for Lumberg's role, John C. McGinley, also known Mm -hmm. as Dr. Cox from Scrubs. Yep. Yep. That's where you know him from. It's where... Pretty much everyone. If you know, if you know John C. McGinley, it's because you saw Scrubs, yeah, or Office Space, mm-hmm. or Platoon. He was one oh, of he the, was in Platoon. One of the main characters in Platoon. Totally forgot that. <laughs> and then Stephen Root, who plays Milton. Milton. Yeah. Recently, he's was on Barry. Yes, yeah. so good on Barry. Yeah. And then who's the guy? The neighbor guy, Dietrich Bader. Dietrich yes. Bader <laughs> plays Lawrence. Such great character actors in this movie. Peter Dietrich Neighbor. Bader. Mm-hmm. What happened to him? He was on Veep too. He was on oh, Veep. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was good. This is an incredibly quotable movie. Part of the reasons why it must have achieved cult status is that it's infinitely quotable. So we have to go around. What are your favorite quotes, most memorable quotes? If it's more than one, that's okay. Feel free to share them all. Hmm. I gotta go with uh, Dietrich Bader, the two chicks at the same time. (laughs) That always makes me laugh, every time. That's the only one I can think of right now. (laughs) Yes, and this was part of why we ended up picking this, was we were having a conversation. I was complaining, like, we were just talking about how when the weather's out, you don't really want to be inside working. You'd rather just be outside in the weather. Then we started thinking about the question that Peter poses to his coworkers and to his neighbor, which is that if you had a million dollars, what would you do? Well, he says that that was the question his high school yeah. counselor always posed to try to figure out what people really should be doing with their lives. 
with their careers? And his answer was always nothing, mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing. Whereas when he asks his neighbor, played by Dietrich Bader, you get the iconic response. So, Frankie, what would you do if you had a million <laughs> Don't make dollars? Me say it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the best line. Lawrence, what would you do if you had a million dollars? I'll tell you what I'd do, man. Two chicks at the same time, man. <laughs> that's it? You had a million dollars, you'd do two chicks at the same time? Damn straight. Always wanted to do that, man. And I think if I were a millionaire, I could hook that up, too, because chicks dig dudes with money. Well, not all chicks. Well, the type of chicks that double up on a dude like me do. Good point. Well, So many of these ideas and phrases, like, you know what they mean without even having seen the movie because they just, they hit so well. There's the, every look, somebody has the case of the Mondays. I hate that. It's like nails on a chalkboard. Although sometimes on a Monday, it's really hard for me not to say that to my coworkers. No. Not in that like chipper way, but just like a... No. I love when when Peter tells his neighbor, Dietrich Bader, does anyone at work ever say, (laughs) looks like a case of the Mondays? And he's like, no, man. No, No, man. Fuck no, man. Uh, the timing is excellent on that. Is that is Case of the Mondays? Is that a Garfield? Is that Kathy? Who? What is that? Dilbert? What is that's a cartoon thing, I'll right? That's from a, that's those. from a comic. No, I think it must be. It sounds like Garfield. Wiktionary says Case of the Mondays, a fictitious disorder associated with the tiredness, <laughs> irritability, or distractedness that comes from returning to work after the weekend. <laughs> it sounds like a an animated thing. It comes. It sounds like a. It, it comes sounds from a like comic strip. it sounds like she read it in Garfield and cut it out and then used a thumbtack <laughs> to put it in her cubicle. Exactly. Yep. There's also pieces of flair. The flair. Pieces of flair. Jennifer Aniston's character working at Tchotchkes has to wear these buttons on her suspenders for her uniform, mm-hmm. and there's a minimum number, and she only puts the bare minimum number of flair. And. uh it's a constant hassle at her work. Yeah, 15 pieces of flair is the minimum, but another employee has 37 pieces of flair. The and worst. The boss just wants her to express herself. <laughs> he wants her to feel free to express herself. Like, like I totally get that feeling of, like, there is a minimum, but you yeah. really do want everybody to be doing more than the minimum because you want them to be wanting to be there. Yeah, but she's making $5 an hour at, a, at, at best at this waitressing job. I love when Peter asks her about the flare mm-hmm. when they're having lunch, and she says, well, I don't really like to talk about my flare. <laughs> <laughs> right. She's so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. When re-watching this before we started recording, I didn't remember the line that Peter delivers later in the movie about flare. Did you remember it, Frank? Oh, yeah, but the... Hitler made the Jews wear pieces of flair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is really funny. It's hilarious because it's so beyond the, the pale. <laughs> and it honestly, that, that line itself um, really anticipated a lot of our online discourse. <laughs> just, oh. <laughs> just like five yeah, years later. Yeah. Very true. So those are some of the iconic lines and like quotes from the film, but they're also iconic moments 
as well, specifically around office equipment. Do we want to talk about the printer first or the stapler first? <laughs> You're talking about the printer. With the yeah, printer. let's talk about the printer. So the printer. And the printer is constantly a problem for Michael Bolton and Samir. And we see them multiple times battling with this printer. When they find out that they're going to be leaving this company, Peter gives them a gift, like a going away present. And he steals the printer. They take it out to a field and they... They jump the printer, basically. They, yeah, they jump, exactly. <laughs> and the way it's edited is just hilarious. And the way they're, like, just over-performing this is so funny. And the music. Yeah, it's uh, Ghetto Boys, still a gangster rap group from the 90s, <laughs> who have some really, really hardcore lyrics. Yes, yes. <laughs> really hardcore. Which I didn't realize how... I didn't realize the language in some of those songs until rewatching it with the subtitles. <laughs> because it's those the lyrics it's they're almost secondary to the vibes that it's trying to give off. Well, I read that some of the actors in that scene later when they were in New York City, I guess premiering the film, that there were some kind of like mafia type guys who after they saw it came up to them and said, That was that was pretty realistic. <laughs> you guys <laughs> Perform that one really well. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, the the use of gangster rap in this film <laughs> is like such a hilarious juxtaposition between these office casual shirts and ties and like pleated pants, listening to this very hardcore angry music. But it it really is like the thing that expresses how angry and disgruntled they are yeah and like conveys that very well and it's probably like the only way that they can really get out any kind of aggression is through this kind of music like it it heightens it to that level of like they really want to murder this (laughs) printer that doesn't function yeah and there's also this the scene earlier in the film when peter decides he's just going to stop caring about his job and trying at it and he shows up late after fishing in the morning and then he cuts the fish and he knocks down one wall of his cubicle so he can see out of the window and I think both of those sequences are playing with this idea that there are these unnatural barriers that these sorts of jobs set up this machinery that doesn't work like the the printer the equipment that doesn't work these meaningless cubicles and like why does he have a wall there at all because there's not another cubicle next to him right um and it's just blocking the window right which is probably why they put it there so that he couldn't see out the window and be distracted exactly yeah (sighs) Mm -hmm. or some sense of fairness because not everyone can have a winter a window view it's designed to not work (laughs) for the, the employees right like the part like the parking lot yeah right so the whole idea that's called office space right like none of this is designed for them at all the last bit that i want to talk about when it comes to the iconic office equipment is the stapler stapler milton's stapler right which the whole time he's like can i get my stapler back like he took my stapler and it's like this nothing piece of office equipment that he's fixated on that somebody else is like also fixated on like taking from him these like meaningless little battles of things that become so important because it's it's all about 
kind of like the disrespect and like the like dehumanization of all of this. Right, right because the middle management has this power over these employees, right? It's reflected also um, in the scene when Lumberg tells Peter to go ahead and come on in Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. It's totally arbitrary. Right? Yeah. And also, same with the stapler. It's just he can take it away, so he does. Right. But it's also Milton's fixation on getting the stapler back. It's kind of a an idea of like, well, that is mine. It belongs to me. That's the rule and we should respect it. Mm-hmm which is kind of like when we're introduced to Milton and Peter's relationship where Peter tries to ask Milton to turn down his radio and says, right. just as a personal favor, yeah. you just turn it down. And it's like, well, the personal yeah. is irrelevant right. in that situation right. for Milton where he's like, well, she gets to listen yeah, exactly. to her headphones, so I, sh- I was told I was allowed to do this. Yeah. Right. But it reminds me of how corporations <laughs> often say, oh, we're a family. Yeah. No, you're not. You're a corporation. You're a business. You're not family, right? And it's it's reflected in that as well, right? Yeah. Like, they they try to foster the sense of community by having these BS birthday parties and all you know these community meetings that are totally detached from what the workers are actually supposed to be doing all day. Like that that one scene where he's just talking about how they have new timesheets or something and they they have to log them a different way and then everyone's just totally zoned out and it's supposed to foster i guess a sense of community among these people you get everyone together for the meeting mm. but it's all fake friday is hawaiian shirt day right exactly so you can wear a hawaiian shirt and jeans yeah if you want to if you want to but also how gary cole delivers that line he starts off so enthusiastic like they're gonna love this gets the sense from the room that this means nothing to them and then his tone changes yeah. just a little bit yeah about that great delivery and this is also, I mean, it's reflected in all of the plot lines, these themes, right? So with Milton and then with Peter and then also with Joanna at Tchotchkes, right? So how that plays out is that her boss wants her to want to wear more flair and he's comparing her to the other waiter who has 37 pieces of flair, right? And the whole time, the the waiter who's going above and beyond is like very energetic and camp counselor energy and then the last scene that he is in he flips her off after she (laughs) after she leaves the job right so it's not you're not actually family they're not actually cultivating that it's all fake right they're still in competition with each other Mm -hmm. i mean i don't know how you do cultivate a family atmosphere at work or like a team atmosphere it's not really like family is the wrong word for it so right now i am I'm management level at my job (laughs) and like trying to create a a work environment that's fun and where people want to come to work. It's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And ultimately you just want people who want to be there because then that makes it easier. Yeah. Yeah, but how can you expect anyone to be happy working at this job? And I think Michael Bolton has an interesting line where he says, well, you're guidance counselor in high school is wrong because if they were right we wouldn't have janitors we wouldn't have all of these jobs some jobs just some jobs just need to be done but at that point it's not about wanting to be there we need labor in these different forms it's about you know compensating appropriately it's about respecting that that's not going to be someone's whole life which like Lumberg doesn't do right he's calling Peter in on Saturdays and Sundays and expecting this 
meaningless job, let's be honest. Like, he's not connected to, Peter's not connected to what he's producing at this job at all. He's just changing numbers all day, um, expecting that to be his life and not respecting a work-life balance, right? Well, I think that that's telling in that conversation of janitors because those are jobs that we do not respect in society. But I can totally imagine somebody who takes great pride in being able to have a sanitary, like, clean workspace for other people and, like, maintaining a building and and being able to see, like, the direct immediate results of your hard work. Like, I can see that being appealing to a lot of people, but what's not appealing is the low wages and lack of respect that those positions typically get. I think also in the United States, we expect people to feel very grateful that they have a low-paying job. Like, at Tchotchkes, they show that well, where... You know, the manager basically expects her to go above and beyond for this minimum wage job where she isn't respected by management or the customers, right? And she's working really hard for very little, and they're expecting her to love her job. I think in most parts of the world that aren't the U.S., we understand that there can be a difference between doing a job well and actually, like, it being your identity. And they want it to be her identity, Mm -hmm. this job. Mm. It's just a job, Right. And she takes, I think she takes pride in doing a good job as a waitress, but it doesn't have to be your identity at the same time. Yeah. Right. right. There's a way to motivate people that is not the same as yeah. saying this is all, that, if this right. is all that you are, therefore that's, that's why you have to be good at it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Or like to working as a janitor doesn't mean that your identity is going to be being good at your job as a janitor. You could take pride in doing a good job and then go home and have this whole other life. But I think this movie shows that that's not exactly the case in the United States, right? What would be a Marxist interpretation of office space? Like, does it fit I in? think it is a Marxist I think movie. the whole thing is Marxist, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's basically saying that he, Peter is disconnected and alienated from his work, so he finds work that he's connected to. Like, he's connected to the product of the construction work, right? And basically... All you can do in our society is figure out the way that you can best survive, like, with your sanity. Because it's all about extracting and taking away from people. Right? Like, none of these characters are fulfilled by their work. So Marxism is, it's the idea that they're disconnected so they will never be fulfilled by it. So the best you can do is find a job that you can connect to in some way. It's, It's exactly what Jennifer Aniston's character says. Like, no one likes their job. Yeah. In our society, in this economy, all you can do is find one that allows you to survive it. Right. It's like right. when Peter is finally working at the construction site and he's like, well, you know, I get to be outside all day. Yeah. I'm getting some exercise. Right. Like, Fucking A. Fucking A. Right. Well, I love the opening scene, and I feel like the opening scene is relevant here when Peter is driving to work. That's how we start. We start in a car, stuck in traffic, just stop and go, like the commute to work. Mm-hmm. And he tries to switch lanes because he thinks, oh, well, that lane's moving forward, so that's where I should be. Mm-hmm. And he switches his car there, and then it stops. And then the lane he was in previously is still moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I feel like that scene is kind of a metaphor for a lot of what Peter's doing, a lot of what the commentary of the film saying, 
you think that you're supposed to be in a place because that's the status that's success that's where you're supposed to be Mm -hmm. instead of like where do you need to be like seeing where you are and not constantly trying to jump for the thing yeah the status or whatever and like we see peter by the end leave this corporate world Mm -hmm. and try something at a different speed Mm -hmm. and something that might not have the same status and moving forward in the way that his colleagues and his other friends are doing. It's a different path. It's a different lane. He's working construction, like demolition construction. Right. Yeah. Right. Like physical labor, which we typically think of as a less desirable job for pretty much anybody rather than like a desk job, like a white collar Mm -hmm. job. But he's much happier. Yeah. Yeah. That, so that opening scene with the cars, that's also interesting, too, because Samir, we all see Samir in the car, and he's just, like, screaming and, like, like sorry, like, 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 banging against the steering wheel because he's so, like, frustrated and has such road rage from sitting in traffic. Right. Mm-hmm. And we see Michael Bolton mm. perfectly content to be sitting in his car because he's just singing along and rapping. Yeah. Until he sees a man walking down the median. Yeah, a black man. A black black man. man. Right. He stops singing and he locks his car. And then when the guy passes, then he starts singing again. My take on this is that the use of this explicit rap music, first of all, it says that these workers, like Peter and his friends, are of a younger generation than the middle management, right? Than the Mm -hmm. Bill Lumbergs. And it's already setting up this, like, generational battle between you know like the gen x and then the boomer managers i think the other side of that is that it's a reflection of their quest for authenticity in their Mm -hmm. lives or peter's quest i should say that is reflected in some of the other characters especially like joanna right Mm -hmm. they're yearning for authenticity in life that they aren't finding in this job right and then by the end physicality right like a more physical job that peter finds in the construction work but i think all of it is is a commentary on a ennui this dissatisfaction and a search for something more real a malaise yeah well it feels like the whole place just feels devoid of culture right it is soulless like there's no real feeling anywhere as reflected in that scene with michael bolton you know, raising his window when the black man walks by when he's listening to to rap. I think he's he's searching for that authenticity in this exoticized way through black music. But then the reality of that, right, when he's confronted with it with an actual black person walking by his car, mm-hmm. um, he, like the fantasy of that is detached from the reality right. of it. And then that scene so clearly points out right. the disconnect of these guys from yeah. the culture they're consuming. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost escapist. Yes. Yeah. Right? As, mm-hmm. as Jesse was saying about, it's a way of expressing the anger that they feel when they're just cooped up in these cubicles. Mm-hmm. Well, and the black man who walks by the car is selling flowers yep. to the people in traffic. The economic difference between versus this middle class that these white guys who are consuming it are actually living. Yeah, or their encounter with the other black character in the movie. Yeah, that guy shows up and he's selling magazine subscriptions mm-hmm. yeah and he's his story is like i am was used to be on crack like now i'm selling these right. magazine subscriptions and he talks in a very like 
uneducated way and then yeah. they bring him in and they're like tell us about crack tell us because right. they want to learn more about money laundering right. and so they're like tell us about this drug trade that you're a part of right and then he finally breaks down he's like look i'm not i used to be a software engineer right. <laughs> But I think that's totally, yeah. and it's totally commentary on this search for authenticity when that's commodified. He was selling them an idea of what they yeah. would buy exactly. or the, what they would assume about him. But if that he admitted, yeah, I'm an out-of-work software engineer and I make more money selling magazine subscriptions, mm-hmm. that's not the narrative that they want to buy about him. No. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I do I do love the, the music in the movie. I think it's great. It's one of the most memorable aspects yeah. of the movie. Yeah. The juxtaposition of the music to some of the actions that it's playing in the scenes, one of the best is Peter driving in and parking in Lumberg's parking spot while, damn, it feels good to be a gangster yeah, yes. place. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just, I love the idea that for this guy, like, the gangster move is to just take the boss's parking mm-hmm. spot. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the music is used really well in another scene. The scene where they execute the crime perfectly timed to the music mm-hmm. after Peter decides that he doesn't care about the job anymore and they realize that they're all going to get fired. Mm-hmm. They decide to put a computer virus into the system that will take a little bit of money that's being rounded out and put it into a bank account. And over a period of years, it will collect and, and add up to a lot of money. And so they feel like this is a victimless crime, right? Yeah, and they base it off an idea from Superman 3. Superman 3, which I've never seen. Which I've never seen because it's Superman 3. I don't know. That's a little too deep for me. Mm -hmm. But they all know the reference. Yes. (laughs) But yes, the scene where they do the crime, the music, perfectly timed, hilarious. What was it? Are they like gunshots in the song? But it's when he's like clicking the mouse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) perfectly timed (laughs) it's down for whatever by ice cube it's so good and then they they do the crime which is just put the virus on a floppy disk and they they've choreographed it so that they're covertly passing it and it's all in slow motion just the editing is hilarious like they really pull the comedy out of these really mundane things and then at the end cut the music and they're like wow that was actually really easy yeah it's it's well timed. It's well edited. It's it's, it's good, good comedy. It's good comedy. I like the scene in the car when Peter's trying to explain to Joanna what they're doing, and she goes, "That sounds like a crime. It sounds wrong." He goes, "You know what's wrong is these people making money off of us mm-hmm. and taking our." like hopes and dreams away right much. it's yeah. like oh these consultants are gonna come in yeah. and fire really good guys right. and put me on management track even and outsource though i jobs. don't care yeah. about this job and these mm-hmm. guys care about this job just yeah. so our boss's stock can go up like exactly. quarter of a point exactly yeah. yeah it's the greed and it's like mm-hmm. just how devoid of humanity and like how soulless all of these mm-hmm. decisions are mm-hmm. it's all just for profit and they're not actually thinking about the real people right which is really i mean isn't that what you're all searching for is like the victimless crime where you get something and you're not actually hurting anybody is that as our lawyer is that what we're searching for (laughs) (laughs) no it's not because there is a crime look white collar crime is not taken seriously enough in america and that is the source of a lot of a lot of evils in america 
Yes. Anyway. <laughs> so let's let's chat a little bit about the production. Even the title of it makes you want to think about the setting and the production design office space. So what is this space? It's cubicles, fluorescent lighting, just everyone cut off from each other. But you also can like play around with these cubicles in a really fun way. So you can shoot Milton talking on the phone to somebody describing what's just happened in his little cubicle pull the camera up over to the next cubicle and he's just talking to Peter who was sitting right there and could hear all of it anyway. (laughs) And the scene that Frankie mentioned about when Peter takes the screws out of the cubicle to knock down the wall so that he can look out the window. The best part is that he doesn't want to be at work, but he's still at work. Like, he still goes. He wears casual clothes. He, like, messes up the view. He's playing Tetris on the computer. Eating Cheetos. Eating (laughs) Cheetos at the desk that are just spilled on the desk that he's just eating from the desk directly. Like, he's still showing up to work. (laughs) Like, even though he's like, I'm just not going to go anymore. Like, he's still physically going. He's not mentally going. Yes. Yeah. Like, he still cannot pull himself away from... The space. The space. The office space. Peter is like Bartleby the Scrivener. Yes, he is. Oh, yeah. It's very much like that. Yeah. Elaborate for her. <laughs> Bartleby the Scrivener, a short story by Herman Melville, mm-hmm. where Bartleby shows up to work, just like sit at a desk, like he's a Scrivener, he's writing. Mm-hmm. He's really productive at first, and then eventually his productivity declines, and then he ends up just showing up to work and every new task that they give him, he says, I prefer not to. And then in order to hide the fact that his employee is not, like, not producing, the manager moves the office to another location and Bartleby follows. (laughs) Which is really bizarre managing. (laughs) Right. And then Bartleby just won't go away. Which is like Peter's still showing up to the office, even though... Like, he's not being productive. Like, he still is, like, in the routine of showing up. And Bartleby eventually starves to death in jail. But it's also, like, Milton, where they just keep moving his desk until he's in the storage basement with the cockroaches. Because no one will just say to his face, you've been fired. That's why you're not getting a paycheck anymore. Yeah. You were actually fired five years ago. And there was a glitch in the system. Right. Right. And it's all about semantics. It's like, oh, well, we're not actually firing him. We just fixed the glitch. Right. You know, and just how, like, dehumanized the whole thing has become. Messed up. And just changing the location to get rid of a problem instead of right. confronting it head-on and dealing with people like, as people. Right. They should have hired George Clooney. From up in the air. From up in the air to come in and hire and fire everybody if the most efficient way. <laughs> Not the Bobs, the efficiency experts. Right. The Bobs can come in and identify the people who need to be fired, and then George Clooney can come in and, and fire them. Yeah. Give them the packet, the pamphlet, send them on their way. Yeah. yeah. You see, what we're actually trying to do here is we're just, we're trying to get a feel for how people spend their day at work. So if you would, would you walk us through a typical day for you? Yeah. Great. Well, I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh... I use the side door, that way Lumberg can't see me. <laughs> and uh, after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Tell him uh, space out? Yeah, I just stare at my desk. But it looks like I'm working. 
I do that for uh, probably another hour after lunch, too. I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. But he also, it's hostile. The space is even hostile to him. The first time we see him go in, the handle, the door into the office always sparks him, gives him like an electric shock, and he's staring it down, hoping this time it won't happen again. And then it does. Right. And then what does he do when he comes back and he doesn't care anymore? He takes the handle off of the door. Like there's all this aggression towards the physical space and the physical tools in the space. And then which ultimately culminates in the the, printer bash, the printer bash. (laughs) And then Milton burning it down. And then Milton burns it down. And he says throughout mumbling to himself. I'm going to burn this place I'm going to burn this place down. I'm going to set the building on fire. I told you. I, that's the last time I told That's the last time I told you. <laughs> that's the last time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But the office has to be destroyed in the end. Because the main characters that we know and love in this movie, they experience this office primarily through the physical space of it, as we just outlined. So they're experiencing it through the material, like the materiality of the office space, whereas the middle management and above, like the consultants, see it in terms of the stock options, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, when Peter is complaining about everything, he says, well, what if we gave you some sort of like a stock option? Would that help? (laughs) And he goes, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Because that's not really what the issue is so much. It's about the daily experience of working in this space that is so hostile um, and alien. And so it has to be destroyed in the end. It can't be just that they take some money from it. That's not a victory. Right. In order to have, like, that victorious feeling at the end, you have to destroy the space. Well, it's about the day-to-day. Right. Right? Like, the problem of motivation, but also what Peter says when he goes to hypnotherapy. Mm-hmm. He says, when I started this job, every day has been worse than the last, which means every time you see me, it's on the worst day of my life. Yeah. Oh, God. I feel yeah. that? so hard. Yeah. That's just a devastating statement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, another thing about the this, like, cubicle office space, there's no privacy, right? You're constantly hearing other people talking. You're never alone. He has eight bosses who all come up saying the same thing about the TPS reports. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's relentless and oppressive, right? And how they design it is that they want it to be oppressive. Exactly. And isolating. And isolating, Yeah. yeah. And... You know, what's so interesting is that even when Peter goes home and he sits down on his couch, there's still no privacy. Yeah. His neighbor, Lawrence, can hear everything because the walls are so yep. thin that even, like, in an apartment, you know, mm-hmm. there's just no place where you can go and be, be alone. That, and be alone. Yeah. It's like you're isolated, but you never get to be alone. <laughs> they burn down the office, but that doesn't destroy the company, and that doesn't destroy these mindless jobs where people get no respect and are disposable because Samir and Michael Bolton just go to another job that's almost identical. You know, they're not actually tearing down the system. They're destroying these physical things because that's what's available and that's what they as individuals can do. One person can burn down the building, (laughs) but one person can't change the system. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, only Peter and... Milton, Milton escape escape on their terms from, right on because, their terms so you also yeah. have this other coworker that we haven't talked about yet Tom Smikowski mm-hmm. 
who... Oh, God, this is so depressing. His job, he has to explain his job to the consultants, and he's like, my job is to just take the specifications from the customer and take it to the software engineers because they can't speak to each other. Then it becomes clear that, well, they all have secretaries, and what is Tom actually doing? And it doesn't really make sense. And he didn't even want to do this job anyway. He wanted to develop a jump-to-conclusions mat, (laughs) which he thinks is brilliant. And, like, that's his, like, creative pet project to dream because wouldn't it be great to have been the guy who invented the pet rock? Yeah. That's who we're looking up to. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He has one of the saddest storylines in the whole movie. Right. But everyone thinks he's so lucky because he gets hit by a truck. But he gets hit by a drunk driver. (laughs) Breaks all the bones in his body. And gets a seven-figure settlement. But this is a great example of this idea that so many Americans, like the stereotype that Americans uh, feel like they're millionaires who don't have the money yet, like who haven't hit the lottery yet, basically. It's the exact same thing there. He's like, he's looking for that big break. It's like, I will get, you know, I this jump to conclusions, Matt, or something like this, or the pet rock. Like, he's looking up to the pet rock inventor. Yeah. This idea that you can just have that one thing and get the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and holding out for that. And then, of course, he... he gets the money because he has his body destroyed and then he's like litigious and sues over it and that's like the american dream (laughs) it's so sad he's like yeah "Yeah, you know things could go well for you like look at me right (laughs) and he's in just all wrapped up and in a wheelchair and who knows what the lifelong physical effects of those injuries are going to be but he's set which this job that he did for decades possibly and just fired him from, didn't give him any happiness or any security or any path towards being able to achieve any kind of a dream. Right. <sighs> it's also interesting that they picked a drunk driver to be responsible. Like, we don't mm-hmm. have to think further of, right. oh, well, what happened to that person that caused that accident? It's yeah. like, oh, well, he was a drunk driver? Right. Done. We don't yeah. care. Yeah. He's a criminal. Right. Yeah. But our white-collar criminals are our protagonists. Yes. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Excuse me. Well, okay, but that's the last draw. Something that's interesting, I think, about Peter is that he's given a promotion when his two friends are set to be fired. Mm-hmm. He knows he hates this job. He doesn't want to be doing it. He knows that they want it. They want the job security. They want to be working at places like this. Mm-hmm. Instead of just taking the promotion, going on the management fast track, just he instead makes it about all of them. He, they band together instead of fighting each other or separating or just going their own ways. And I think that that's an interesting element of the plot yeah. when they yeah. find out that what they're doing is probably it's more criminal and it's spiraled out of control faster than they could have imagined. And they're driving in the car. He says... Well, I realize this is more than about, like, my dream of doing nothing. Right. Right? It's, a, <laughs> it's about all of us. Yeah. <laughs> right? And that's so... Th- that doesn't feel like... That's not necessarily a big American narrative, right? Mm-hmm. It's a lot about, like, individualism. Mm-hmm. And so seeing them band together... I love I love that about this movie. And he also takes responsibility, or he intends to take responsibility. He puts a confession with cashier's checks, traveler's checks, with all of the money that they stole in an envelope and shoves it under Lumberg's 
door, office door, in the middle of the night when no one's there. He is willing to take the responsibility and also make it, make them whole. What do we think of Peter as like a hero, as a protagonist? Because I think that the most heroic thing he does is try and like take the blame on himself entirely. He has that like getting bitten by the radioactive spider moment (laughs) when he's at the hypnotherapist, the occupational hypnotherapist who then dies in the middle of hypnotizing him and presumably can't take him out of the, what is it, the the hypnosis state. And then that's what changes his behavior. Mm. And then after that, he becomes this hero pursuing his dream of nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Although I think it's interesting that they call it a dream of nothing because what is he doing at the end? He's working construction. Like he, you know, he could find a way to, to not do anything. Yeah. Remember Dietrich Bader's character earlier said, well, shit, if you want to do nothing, like, look at my cousin. He's broke and doesn't do right. shit. You, you don't need a million dollars to do <laughs> nothing, man. <laughs> exactly. But he's still working, right? And he's enjoying the work because it's something he's connected to, right? Well, that's something that Joanna tells him when they yeah. talk in the parking lot. The last time we see them together, she says, you know, your job, no one really likes their jobs, right. Peter. Like, why? why do you think that needs to happen? Like, there are other ways to be happy and, like, to... Mm-hmm to live life exactly right yeah. your, your job is not your identity even though we build it up so much to be the same thing mm-hmm. i think another thing that's pretty nuanced in this film is that they show that peter as a white collar worker has shared interests with joanna who is a working class waitress right in town and that they actually have more shared interests than they do with anyone who's like upper management in, in these roles, right? Well, I thought that was something really interesting that you pointed out when we rewatched was even the costumes within the office are pointing out the divides. Like, Bill Lumberg is dressed like some 80s Wall Street, like, fever dream. Like, he has, like, all these bright color suspenders and matching ties and these, like, really dated 80s glasses. Which are now back in style with the bar across the top. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and his hair is, like, slicked back. When we were rewatching it recently, I was reflecting on the costuming and thinking when Bill Lumberg was an entry-level 20-something employee, that was probably what he imagined was like a successful manager, right, in the 80s, like let's say 15 years before Office Space takes place. So when he becomes that manager, that's how he dresses, right, because that's what he identifies as being symptomatic of wealth and, you know, success and power. Mm-hmm. Even though by 1999, that look is already really dated. And then the youth of the protagonists is heightened by the use of the, like, the hip-hop mm-hmm. music. And the fact that they're going, like, he's going and he's picking up a waitress at, you know, like a chain restaurant in town, right? All these things. The other cool thing about her is that she leaves her job at Tchotchkes and then works at Flingers, mm-hmm. which is next door. <laughs> yeah. But it's where she and Peter go to have their yeah. lunch date. Yeah. And she's, like, noting how fancy that place is. <laughs> she's like, I love these uniforms. Yeah. These are great. Yeah. But that's why she and Peter are a good couple. Because they are at least both trying to just enjoy life as it comes, right? He's trying to break himself free of the office space, like, in his mind, right? Mm. This idea that it kind of takes over, colonizes your whole life, right? These sorts of jobs. There's no relief. And he's trying to break himself free of that, and she has. She's fine being a waitress at this job, right? She takes pride in her work, but it's not who she is. Yeah. And I think that that's why they, they work well together as characters. 
Yeah, I mean, there are so many ways to answer that question. What would you do with a million dollars? But we make it about work. Like, that's what we make exactly. it about. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, if I had a million dollars, I would... I mean, I don't know how I would answer that question, but, you know, I would do nothing. That would be ideal. But, like, you know, like, there's so many things, like, what would you create with that mm-hmm. money in your time when you're not working? Yeah. Is the idea to just not work because you hate working so much? Mm. Like, oh, if I have a million dollars, then I don't have to do this shitty thing that I don't want to be doing. Right. Mm-hmm. And Instead of, oh, I can keep doing this thing that I do every day to make money to pay my bills, but now I have this extra money where I can go and, like, buy myself a garden that I can garden on the weekends or in the afternoon or buy a really cool car or like go on a trip with my family or have a family and have extra money to pay for Mm -hmm. childcare because America doesn't do that. Right. You know, like all these things that would supplement that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, when I heard the, what would you do if you had a million dollars question? I thought of two things. I thought of the bare naked lady song. Mm -hmm. If I had a million dollars number one number two i thought of that scene in succession mm-hmm. when greg is greg the egg who has grown up separate from this very rich lifestyle on the tv show succession and he tells them wow i'm gonna inherit like a couple million dollars like yeah how six million dollars or something and he's overwhelmed at how much money this is gonna be and then all of the people who had just been fighting and like not speaking to each other like well that's not enough and they all come together to say that's not you can't really do much with that you know <laughs> yeah that's not much money yeah, yeah. Um, if you think about a million dollars goes fast especially if you have like two hundred thousand dollars in student debt like and yeah. houses cost a million dollars and you're like, young right like yeah. peter's young right yeah well i mean the question is <laughs> it is different now right a million dollars is different yeah. than it was in 1999 you can't do anything with five, Greg. Five's a nightmare. Is it? Oh, yeah. Can't retire. Not worth it to work. Oh, yes. Five will drive you un poco loco, my fine-feathered friend. Poorest rich person in America. The world's tallest dwarf. The weakest strongman at the circus. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring up succession, because I was thinking about that earlier, too, with regards to rap music. Because in Succession, they do the same thing, Mm -hmm. where Kendall is into rap music, the oldest son of this very, very wealthy family. One of the first, the first time we meet Kendall in season one of Succession, he's in the back of a car being driven by a chauffeur, Mm -hmm. and he has his headphones on, and he's rapping along to the song. So it's like Michael Bolton, Mm -hmm. the first time we meet him, he's driving himself in this stop-and-go traffic on his commute to work. Right. And just how different that is. For Kendall, but it's it's the same thing. He's like rapping to the music, but with a a driver. I didn't go to Succession. I went to Workaholics. I also yeah, so much of Workaholics in the music. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. But I think what's interesting is that by the time Workaholics came out, ten years later, a little over ten years later, the characters, the three main characters in Workaholics, feel like their economic situation is much more precarious than the three mm-hmm. protagonists of office space very true right like the economy is very different what it means to be the sort of like entry-level worker at this kind of company is very different mm-hmm. well i mean i don't think we're meant to think that samir michael bolton and peter are entry-level though 
Are we? I mean... No, they've been working for there for, what, four years, five years? Yeah. Something. Like, they're definitely not, like, right out of college, which I think is what the workaholics guys mm-hmm. feel like, that they're these are, like, their first jobs yeah. out of college. Yeah. Peter even says to Michael Bolton, like, you gave them your 20s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now they're just throwing you out, like, yesterday's trash. That sounds like mm-hmm. it, they started after graduation. Exactly. That's what that sounds like. So and and they're maybe now five years And now in. they're in a tech. Right. <laughs> But now they're, like, five years in, let's say. Yeah. Which workaholics covers that amount of time, too. Mm-hmm. Or you could look at, like, The Office. Jim mm-hmm. Halpert in The Office is an example of this, too. Yeah. I just, I was thinking of that because I think the recession, the impact of the recession, and the whole office uh, demeanor is very different, right? Like, you have a lot more diversity in the representation in workaholics in terms of the different, like, side characters that aren't the main three. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a female character who is elevated to be alongside them whereas joanna is really just the love interest in office space right so it's a little updated yeah whereas office space is very 1999 Mm -hmm. even the purpose of peter's job is just to prepare bank data for y2k (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it feels like you know by the time you get to workaholics there's this sense of of course this job isn't their identity right right like of course it's not that's not a battle that they have to deal with right Mm -hmm. We're, and even in the office, Jim doesn't really battle with that at all, right? It's just kind of a given. Like, yeah. But the office is telling the story of, well, family. these people are family. Yeah. And it is that Which that's I find message. Which I find it very problematic, <laughs> the office's messaging on that. And I like the office. Like, I'm not one of those contrary people who doesn't like the office. <laughs> I like the office. <laughs> Anyone who doesn't like the office, just being contrary. <laughs> I like The Office, but I do feel like its ultimate messaging is a little problematic. That this idea that you know you sacrifice so much for this job, like Mike, you know, Michael keeps saying, "Oh, um, <laughs> there's he has a line where like I didn't have kids for this job." And everyone's like, everyone's like, no one asked you to do that. But this idea that this idea that they laugh at like how ridiculous that is, you know, we do. But that I think in the end the show reinforces it because it rewards him. Mm-hmm. For sticking through it. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they do become his family. Mm-hmm. And he does, you know, meet Holly. And it rewards him, even though it, we're supposed to laugh at how ridiculous it is. That gets worse over the run of the show. The early seasons are way more, like, office space-like mm-hmm. in terms of, like, the ennui, the, you know, disillusionment and, and that kind of thing. Tough messaging. To the point where, actually, like, Gen Z now, I know are really into The Office, and I think a part of that, like Billie Eilish, is really into The Office. I think a part of that is this, like, fantasy of what The Office could be, and it doesn't exist, right? Like, The Office doesn't really exist like that. It's a fantasy. Well, The Office doesn't exist like this anymore, especially after last year. Exactly. So many of these types of jobs from office space can be done remotely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So So it's it's like romantic now to watch something like The Office. You know, in The Office, there are people who are supposed to have been working there for 20, 30 years, right? That kind for of job time. security. Doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. Even Samir. Right. Yeah. Which is another exactly. one of my favorite lines when Peter's like, what if we're doing this when we're 50? And Samir's like, I would love to have that kind of job security. Right. If only we could be so lucky. Right. right. And it's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it, I think that is still really true, that idea of, you know, like we just don't know what, what's going to change in the future. So with the pandemic people like Lumberg and all of those mm-hmm. who just like manages by walking around with a cup of coffee 
he w- he's the kind of person who would be pushing for people to be back in person. Yes. Because exactly. he has that old style, old management style where you have to be in person in order to exert your power on other people in order to get them to do their job. And not yeah. trusting employees to be able to manage their own time to get their stuff done yes. effectively. Mm-hmm. Like these very old feeling like these old concepts of how people work and what people can be trusted to do. Yeah. Like Lumberg would be a menace on Slack, right? He would just be messaging everyone. He'd mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. make you do a huddle every day yeah. at 10 a.m. Yeah. Right. It's yep. just, oh, yeah. We, we just ta- talked about how it's very 1999. How would it look today? Could you do an office space in 2021? What would that look like? I don't think so. Because I think what would happen is it would be Silicon Valley. Yeah, mm. that's what Silicon Valley is. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that that's the same. I think that the economy has changed so much that it, you just, it, this is not really as relevant anymore. I think something like Silicon Valley or I think, you Brent mentioned this, Jesse, but the movie Waiting with mm-hmm. Ryan Reynolds and um, mm. yes. Justin John, Long, John Francis Daly, yes. Justin Long. <laughs> Which is the office space, but for restaurant workers. That still feels entirely relevant today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And you could remake that movie very easily today. Office space, I think you could, but I don't know that it would... I don't don't know. I bet you could take kind of the plot of disgruntled workers... Yeah. Like, trying to get back at the corporation they work for. You could take that plot, but you can't really set it in the same yeah. type of place. I think so much could... of that movie is about the space of it, mm-hmm. about the cubicles and what that represents. And it doesn't really exist like that anymore. I mean, it does, but it's not the driving force of our economy like it was when Office Space came out. Right. Did Office Space have anything to do to inspire The Office in UK? Definitely inspired workaholics, but I don't I don't know about the office and no. the legacy of office space is it's just like it's cult classic status. It's just in how people talk about it, right? And the stapler, right? The red swing line stapler stapler did not exist before this movie. They spray painted that stapler. Swing line then three years later started releasing a red stapler because it became so popular from this movie. I remember the thought I had. Okay. Bring it. Okay. So I watched the movie Clock Watchers, which came out like three years before Office Space. It's about these four women who are working at temps in an office, like a nondescript credit company. <laughs> and they are disrespected, distrusted, unhappy, bored, miserable. Mm-hmm. It was directed by a woman, Jill Sprecher, who didn't really do a lot of other films after that unlike Mike Judge. And it's really, it's not as laugh out loud funny. And I can't think of any quotes that come from it. Mm -hmm. But she wrote it with her sister, which I think is really cool. Because you don't get a lot of sister duos in the film industry. So Like you do with brothers. Which we can talk about another time. But it's very frustrating. (laughs) It has a lot of similar kinds of things. It has the isolation of being in a cubicle. People telling you to do mundane things and feeling like there's nothing that you see from the work that you're doing that's beneficial to the world or to yourself or anything. But it's interesting because they're temps, so they're even outside of the office culture, which makes them band together Hmm. as outsiders. So they, they really feel like not just that the office doesn't 
value them because they're office workers and because it's a corporation, but they feel like because they're not permanent employees, they are not valued or respected, Mm. which is an interesting twist on that idea where it's like you would feel this way even if you were a permanent employee. Right. And it has humor in it, but it's much more absurdist and it's directly influenced by Jacques Tati. Mm -hmm. um, Playtime. Yeah. (laughs) And there are a lot of moments that are just like really silly, like one of the temps, like just taking all this bubble wrap and just popping it. (laughs) And Lisa Kudrow's in this movie. Yeah, Lisa Kudrow's in this movie. So this is the Lisa Kudrow to the vehicle to the jennifer aniston office so there's no like laugh out loud belly laughs there's no culmination where they take down the company they don't burn down the building in fact the group kind of instead of coming together like they do in office space the clock watchers group fractures and they are destroyed by the outside pressure sounds darker it is much darker yeah yeah, in Clock Watchers, they would be happy to get permanent positions, like what Peter, mm-hmm, Samir, mm-hmm, and Michael right. Bolton have. Well, that seems probably more relevant even, like, to yeah, now, to definitely, today. Yeah. Definitely. Right, the gig economy, freelancing, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, you're really lucky if you can get, like, a stable, solid, full-time exactly. position anywhere. Right. Yeah. What do we think of the Michael Bolton joke? The running gag Hilarious. Movie? Love it. I think it's hilarious. I love that the Michael Bolton character is the one who's really into the rap music. Mm-hmm. It has a Snoop Dogg poster on his cubicle. <laughs> I think that's because he grew up with Michael Bolton, like, yeah, hanging over his shoulder. <laughs> I think so, too. It's a reaction to that. <laughs> it's the complete opposite genre of music. Yeah. Uh, so who would be... Like, if you were making this movie today and you wanted to have a joke like that, mm-hmm. who would be the person... Who would be the Michael Bolton? Would we still use Michael Bolton? I mean, we can't because Office Space. John already. Legend. Okay, I think it would be Katy Perry because you need to have like a pop musician, someone that I would have if I were doing this now, and I were to have a Michael Bolton type gag in a movie. I would have it be a young woman named Katy Perry who's really into like indie girl music, like she really loves mm-hmm. like Phoebe Bridgers. She really yeah. likes. You know, I don't know. She, who knows? Maybe she has, like, a poster of Solange on her cubicle. But it's, like, a totally different vibe. And then she has to say her name is Katy Perry. And I would have her, like, really hate pop music. And then I would have her be really frustrated that Katy Perry stole her name because Katy Perry's is a stage name. That's not even Katy Perry's real name. Her real name is Kate Hudson. That's funny. <laughs> but if it was a if it was a man, right? So it has to be someone who got big in like the late two thousands, early twenty tens. Harry oh. Styles. <laughs> so who was Michael Bolton popular with when moms? Right, with, with moms. Yeah. Moms. We don't cater to that group in pop pop music anymore. Oh, maybe a country country star. Country star. Country star. Who would be Keith Urban? Tim McGraw. No, Tim McGraw's a little too... I think Keith Urban, because he's, like, also a pretty boy. Like, he has more sex appeal, I think, for, yeah. like, moms. You know what I mean? He does have sex. He's Mr. Nicole Kidman. He's more of a straight-up, like, country version of Bon Jovi, you know, in terms of, like, the sex appeal he has for moms. Oh, wait. Who's on Delicious Table? Frankie, who's the most delicious? Who's delicious in this movie? 
Ron Livingston. It's Ron Livingston and Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, yeah she's gorgeous. Aniston. She's got she so much hair on her head in this movie. Yeah. Beautiful hair. <laughs> her hair is gorgeous. No, Ron Livingston, he's so cute. He's cute, you pie. He's, I think he's more attractive in Band of Brothers, but <laughs> he's a little too clean cut in this one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I love Michael Bolton. I think he's also really cute. Ew. I think he's fine. Sorry to this cute. man. And no, Annie. <laughs> he's so cute. No, he's not. Yeah, he is. Smears, Smears Smear? handsome. Smear? Yeah, Smears mm. handsome. Oh my gosh, when he starts breakdancing? Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Now that I'm thinking about that scene, when they're all just dancing in the apartment, that makes Ron Livingston and David Herman much less attractive. Yeah. That dancing was not hot. <laughs> that was not it. Samir S- was it. Not Dietrich Bader. Doesn't do it for you. <laughs> I do love him in this movie. He's great. <laughs> Talk about hair. He's got some hair. <laughs> His sash. Yeah. Is it a mullet? It's a mullet. Yeah. That is is a it mullet. a permed mullet? It's a permed mullet. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's natural curls. He, he rocked it. Maybe, maybe. It He's probably one of the few who could rock it. You still seem approachable and okay. <laughs> you seem like a fun neighbor to have. Yeah. <laughs> any any other no. topics? Any other things? Maybe we should do uh, recommendations. Are we ready to do recommendations? We're ready to do recommendations. Yeah, let's do okay. it. Okay, let's bring them. Can I go first? Yes. Yeah, you can yeah, go yeah, of course. It's my pick. Okay. My recommendation, if you like Office Space, is to watch the TV show, The IT Crowd. So this show, we've all watched. Yes, all three of us. Yep. This TV show is also about guys that work in IT. It started in 2006. It's a British comedy. They work for a company. They're the IT department. It's two guys and their manager. There's this woman who comes in, and that's the start of the show. It's set in London. They're hilarious. Everyone on the show, they're great comedians. I recommend this because it's another office comedy in IT. So connected that way. Mm-hmm. It's very funny. There are 25 episodes that exist. It's over now. And they're each half an hour. It's available on Netflix right now if you want to stream it. But it's it's really, really funny. And does anyone want to banter with me about it or no <laughs> do we banter during recommendations yeah we, we, we do every yeah. time <laughs> yeah the it crowd what do you want me to banter about i haven't seen this in a long time it's really good though why would you recommend this to someone who likes office space it has one of the best quotes about it and working which is that everyone always calls their office with their it complaints and they consistently respond Try turning it off and on again. <laughs> yep. And that's the big quote from the show. Mm-hmm. It's also kind of went viral before that was really a thing. Yeah. Uh, in the same way Office Space did, where a lot of moments and mm-hmm. a lot of images from the show have become memes yeah. over the years. So it's iconic in that way, but it's like a British version of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also have a manager who is incompetent and doesn't know anything really and when she comes in she doesn't understand what the internet is she doesn't (laughs) understand how computers work and when she has to describe her proficiencies she says she can copy and paste (laughs) (laughs) the it crowd is almost like it could be going on the same universe as office space they could be employed at the same company they're just (laughs) 
They're in the basement. They're right? in the basement. They're in the basement. <laughs> and they have the server room where mm-hmm. you have Noel Fielding, who's now one of the hosts of the Great British Bake Off, but he's like the IT tech who lives in the dark <laughs> of the server room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if you want to dive into another universe related to this, check out the IT crowd. So my recommendation is two movies to watch together. Um, Nine to Five, Mm. the 1980 comedy with Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, and Jane Fonda. Love it. And Gene Hackman. Nope. Dabney Coleman. Dabney and and Dabney Coleman. (laughs) (laughs) Put them on a spectrum. Yeah, put them on a spectrum. (laughs) They look almost identical. No. Do they not? Yeah. Their hair, maybe. Mm Mm-hmm. And their face. And their suits. Um, <laughs> it's about women secretaries in the 1980, like early, like that late 70s, early 80s time period. Basically all of the sexual harassment that they have to deal with in the workplace and their fantasies and <laughs> of revenge and then actual revenge against their sexually harassing uh, evil boss, played by Daphne Coleman. Then pair with that, 9 to 5, The Story of a Movement, which is a documentary about a unionizing movement in that same time period, trying to bring together like clerical workers and unionize them for better working conditions, better pay. Amazing. Jane Fonda was influenced a lot by the stories in consciousness-raising discussion groups of mm-hmm. like women talking about their bad work environment stories mm-hmm. and a lot of those are used in nine to five the comedy taken from real life taken from real women's stories i love that i already love that movie but that makes me love it more yeah it's a great documentary um and also talks about how that nine to five like local um like the the unionizing movement sort of dissipated as computers took over a lot of these secretarial clerical jobs oh wow and just the office culture changed Mm -hmm. and then women started leaving those kinds of jobs and going into other jobs that are currently fighting for unionization like childcare workers Mm -hmm. wow that's great yeah i definitely want to watch that doc that sounds Mm -hmm. good yeah all right frank hey frank you take us home okay um my recommendation is going to be a book it's a short book it's the 2016 novel convenience store woman by sayaka murata so it's from japan it's in translation Mm -hmm. and it follows a mid 30 something woman who works at a convenience store in japan her complicated relationship to her job and her desires for her life Mm. so it's from a different gendered perspective it's from a female perspective it's written by a woman Mm. it's from a japanese perspective but i think that it tackles a lot of the same themes that office space does, which is authenticity, you know, your own identity and relationship to your work, maybe some Marxist ideas of not feeling connected to the work that you do or finding too much identity in your work and the problematics of that. And specifically from a gendered perspective, so she's single and navigating what her life will be like continuing like in this job. So Mm. convenience store woman, it's very good. Check it out. Interesting. All right. Is that it? Is that a wrap? I think that's a wrap. Yeah. What a great movie. Great Hilarious movie. movie. Lots of fun. Deep, profound, funny. Yep. Gotta love it. What? Who's next? Who's picking next? Jesse. Jesse, Jesse, you're up. What is next on the docket for our 
I do not dream of labor series. The next movie we're gonna watch is Harlan County, USA, the 1976 documentary by Barbara Koppel. Yes. About the American coal industry. Love it. Love this movie. Yeah. Very excited. It's gonna be very great. excited. This is also our first documentary. Yeah. Woo! Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Join us next time when we talk about Harlan County, USA. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CinemaSilopod. Check out our show notes and show description at CinemaSilopod.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time in the silence.